Hello and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast with Ben Atkinson. I'm delighted to be joined by Marek Doyle to talk about men's hormonal health with a key focus on testosterone. The average testosterone levels in men have continued to decline since the 1960s and barely anyone is talking about this, why it's happening, the implications and what we can do about it. Marek has been on the podcast before and in this episode we go off on many tangents but really they all link back to the same thing which is how men's hormonal health is derailed, what can happen as a result of this and how we can get it back on track. This is a lengthy conversation, please fast forward 20 minutes if you want to get into the topic um, and I really hope you find this useful. So let's get into it. Marek, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be back. It is a pleasure to have you on again, sir. How have you been? Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, uh, the usual ups <laughs> and downs with thinking that I'm soon going to be up to date on my admin and then finding out that uh, after spending a few more evenings holding a sticky baby in front of a fan, <laughs> actually, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit behind again. But uh, yeah, these are all solvable in time, as yeah. we've seen. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm all good. Good. I'm glad. I know we were speaking a bit before as like how we coped in the heat. Um, I feel like there will be a change, hopefully in the near future, where everywhere accommodates air conditioning or something similar. <laughs> well, yeah, it's of course that that usual scenario, like when we get once in a decade snow and everybody says, look at the other countries. They know how to deal with it. But of course, you know, they are used to it. We don't yeah. tend to get that. So, uh, yeah, I'm one of the people that has actually now bought uh, an air conditioning unit the next time. I couldn't get one for love and money uh, during the incident. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I wasn't even worried until I realised, ah, you know what? It turns out that babies don't sleep that well with me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, when it comes to babies and sleeping, um, I'll happily throw money at that problem. <laughs> yeah, I can completely understand that. Um, I can only imagine how, how hard that would that was at the time. Yeah, I'm sure there was millions of us around the country in the same boat. So I'll take some solace in that. But uh, nonetheless, um, yeah, I'm very, very committed to avoiding it next time. I'm sure there will be a next time, hopefully. Yeah, I'm sure there will. I'm sure there will. I mean, I couldn't go out in it because um, I think I have Scottish, Scottish heritage and very pale skin. So, yeah. Yeah, I Melanin mean, I, is not my friend. I didn't try. So, uh, yeah, I just uh, sat here in my office, which uh, is a summer house. Uh, so pretty good trapping the heat. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, again, a little bit of uh, sweat, detoxification. Now uh, we move on. Didn't hurt anyone as long as you hydrate. You're all good. Yeah, yeah, we're exactly that. So, uh, yeah, a bit of salt in the water. Got to be done. <laughs> That's a trick that people aren't aware of. People... Well, I did think about that. I I put on an Instagram post yeah, just to say, that. reminder, just stick a bit of salt in the water. That will solve a ton of problems. And mm. uh, I thought, well, that would be you know, helpful. I'm sure that will help some people. And it seemed to be, uh, yeah, something that really uh, got captured the imagination of a lot of people. So it was clearly <laughs> quite relevant. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, this is uh, not very relevant to uh, the topic of the the show but i think it's relevant nonetheless considering the heat um 
I notice when I put salt in my water just a little bit during the day, I actually drink less and I think it's just more hydrating because I filter my water. So I'm taking away all, well, most of the minerals out of it anyway. Um, it's probably important to remineralize, remineralize it. I imagine that's what we used to, certainly our ancestors were used to. Well, yeah, it's interesting how uh, we're constantly told, make sure you drink enough water, make sure you drink enough water. But to get the water into the cells, which is ultimately what we want to do, we need to be able to move it there. And we need potassium to get it into the cells, we need sodium to hold it outside of the cells. We don't have those there. Well, it turns out osmosis is a thing <laughs> and we're just not going to be able to retain it. It's going to go straight to the bladder. And that's, of course, the experience of millions of people over the last couple of weeks is that, yeah, the more they drink, the more they pee and they're just constantly thirsty because, yeah, we're going to sweat, especially in that heat, which means we're losing those very same minerals that we need to hold it. So, yeah, there's a little something that could be uh, taken to improve that messaging that's just thrown at people. Yes, drink the water but also take some steps so you've got a fair chance of holding on to it. Yeah, exactly. I can't, I don't understand why it's not more well-known than it should, well, than I feel it should be. <laughs> well, I think that can apply for a whole ton of things that we talk about. <laughs> yeah. Some things are naturally pretty complex in the body. And then, of course, there's all these things that don't, actually aren't that complex. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where we could look into do the people who influence public policy and messaging have any qualifications or even basic competence in these areas? I think we can safely say if we glance at the rates of obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, heart disease, after people uh, avidly integrate the recommendations they're given, I think we can safely summarize the level of expertise behind those and that's none and a lot of it is ignorance of course and there's the uh the financial interests which is a brand new subject which we probably shouldn't get into but uh <laughs> but yeah all in all if, if somebody from some governmental health authority says good morning to me i want to go outside and check <laughs> yeah <laughs> um <laughs> that's quite funny i'm gonna use that definitely gonna use that again. it's not the first time i've said it i'll be honest no i can tell it was definitely rehearsed i get i get it there. <laughs> yeah guilty um so on on to the topic of the show so it's great to have you on again and um, last time we spoke about thyroid disease i think more of a focus on hypothyroidism but today i would love to speak to you about men's health because i've I recognized i've done several podcasts now focusing on focusing on women's health and I'll link to those in the show notes for anyone. But I've neglected men's health, or men's general health, and which maybe is neglected in the mainstream as opposed to men's mental health, for example, which I think is getting a lot of attention right now. Um, what do you think about that? Is that a fair assertion? Yeah, I always wonder how much my perspective on these things has any connection to you the bigger picture because you know by definition you know i end up hanging around with people in this industry or more accurately in a specific area of this industry who uh 
more likely to place a focus on these things. So equally, the conversations I have with members of the public, well, this is a very select mem uh, group of the members of the public, those that have decided to come and see me. So naturally, their focus and you know their interest, their knowledge, their exposure to these ideas may well not reflect what's, what's going on out there. Either way, yeah, it, it does feel like there is some very obvious uh, increased discussions about men's health and the need to recognize that men are human as well with central nervous systems that are just as vulnerable to stress as if we had XX chromosomes. So I think that there's definitely some movement there. But yeah, sometimes as with, with many other subjects, you can get into that black and white thinking uh, of, you know, we need to focus on mental health rather than recognizing this quite powerful interplay between physiological health and mental health, because it's, it's very much a two-way street. So, yeah, hopefully the, the discourse will gradually move down that route and, and we can start looking at what does this human being male or female need in order to achieve the the improvements that they're after uh which should always involve some sort of recognition of yeah the the physiology the psychology which can't really be separated mm -hmm. i 100 agree i was going to say you were so right and i agree with you so much that the physiological health and, men and mental health is in inextricably linked because inexplicably one of the two <laughs> because basically if we have um an issue with testosterone for example or gut issues or inf systemic inflammation we know that that is going to have effects on the brain um, I think there was a uh, many articles now talking about the brain on fire and how systemic inflammation, especially brain inflammation, can cause a, a whole host of conditions, not just mental health, um, but other conditions as well. No, one hundred percent, and I do feel like that's getting some recognition, uh, but I don't see any application of it mm. at this point. We're at the concept stage where after what feels like a couple of decades of, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. Just take what we're giving you. Um, we're now getting to the point that, no, it's a really important issue for which we're not necessarily going to integrate, but we will now acknowledge it. So I guess that's progress of sorts. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think it's just going to take time. I think what you see in clinic, it just takes ages to actually become public well, public knowledge. Well, well it, it is, yeah. And they do say that it takes 40 years for uh, any paradigm shift that's revealed in the science to actually end up getting into front line. And unfortunately, that seems to be absolutely spot on, really. So, yeah, luckily, I think we're seeing the public at large taking matters more into their own hands more so mm. than ever before and i think that now there is not really such thing as the nhs and anything else but spirit uh that's probably going to accelerate how people take care of their health uh because yeah there is something to be said for waiting four weeks for a 
three and a half minute appointment whereby you're now put on a waiting list uh, to see somebody who will then put you on another waiting list to see somebody else. Um, sounds like a great way to, to keep yourself entertained if there's nothing else to do. But most people, they want something that they can action now that A, makes sense, and B, will actually deliver some sort of results. And so, yeah, I, I do feel like there's a shift there. As I said, it may well be simply uh, the the area of the world and the people that I speak to, which aren't reflective of, of society at large. But yeah, I do think we are seeing that, that movement. People are starting to question long-held dogma purely because if that dogma is a one-way ticket to this whole host of neurodegenerative diseases and essentially, yeah, living with out the the vitality or the energy or the the brain sharpness that we need to live the lives we want well how long can we remain patient mm -hmm. passive uh so i guess we'll keep our eye on that yeah exactly i mean you you also made such a valuable point there with regards to i guess living in an echo chamber right we, we always speak to people that almost agree with us, um, have the same opinions, go to the same conferences together, and therefore we agree with what the, the speaker is saying most of the time. Um, and that's, that's dangerous in a way because we're constantly getting confirmation that we're right without actually seeing the other side of the argument necessarily. Um, oh, definitely. And it's funny how even in... You know, what we would call this sort of functional space, which again is, is something that seems to be ever more accessible to the public, which is great, uh, but does still feel like it's handicapped in many ways for that exact reason you mentioned, in that often people aren't doing their independent searches of the literature to mm -hmm. actually build a, a more detailed picture. They're not actually uncovering the full picture. They are simply taking good ideas that are delivered, but those good ideas were, were based on the good ideas of somebody else. And they end up being channeled into uh, yeah, avenues that, may well not necessarily uh, have the flexibility to uh, be useful for a whole lot of people who don't fit into the boxes uh, which we're, we're using for leverage to uh, yeah, deliver uh, this support. Well, you know, what about people that have trialed this highly rational, well-developed protocol and got nowhere with it? Mm -hmm. What about those guys? There is not yet uh, a sufficient culture of examining things from up close and from, from a bird's eye view, which always reveals such clear avenues we can take. It always shows us the areas in which we can score the victories we need to make the difference. But yeah, it does still seem to be that there's too much dependency on the so-called authorities in our space and their ideas. And, and so often practitioners and individuals alike are often caught in that situation where they have to decide, do I trust this expert and hope mm -hmm. that 
if I employ this this protocol for the next six months, that that will actually indeed work? Or do I trust the other expert who's saying something different? And it feels like a, a fork in the road with two options. And there's just so many more options. And that's one of the, the main focal points of my, my academy courses, which is, well, why don't we look at the principles that apply in all these cases so that we can now know ahead of time whether this person has a fair chance of responding to Dr. X's idea or practitioner wise protocols we're no longer having to you know, cross our fingers and hope that their protocol is the right protocol and um yeah instead we can take the principles we can undertake the modifications that are called for based on the data that we've got for this person based on a comprehensive screening process which tells us where the obstacles are and maybe there's still some fleshing out of the models we come back with you know, maybe we know where we're going to win but we still need to yield more information as to the specific steps in those pathways uh, maybe we'll have surprises and needs to modify the support after we resolve an obstacle and and switch things on and, and suddenly place a bit more pressure downstream but yeah that's where i think we as a uh, functional health community are, are looking at you know taking things up it's not a case of uh doing another course and getting an even better probiotic or yeah. uh finding uh an, an even more powerful form of the same mineral what if we could actually take a step back and start asking better questions so that yeah we already have a more more accurate idea of exactly what does this individual need and piece it together in a way that's suitable for them it's staged according to uh yeah what layer we're working on at that particular time rather than simply trying to transplant a protocol which is no doubt a good protocol very well thought out mm -hmm. subject to you know decades of research but to try and just squeeze that protocol into their lives is such a a limiting way to go about it so yes there's reason for optimism but there's also enough opportunities for my palm to meet my forehead <laughs> Quick pause, we're thrilled to say that our sponsor for this podcast today is Human People. Human People is a personalized health platform set up by functionally trained doctors and nutritionists right here in the UK, and they're on a mission to give you a healthier, longer, and more productive life. When we start to feel a bit tired, get aches, pains, or brain fog, it can be a challenge to work out the root cause of that problem and how we can solve it. Well, human people are offering a solution. They empower you to better understand your health issues and use AI technology to provide clear, actionable steps to help you meet your goals. Choose between blood, DNA, and gut tests to look for common nutritional deficiencies and important gene SNPs and get your personalized recommendations reviewed by a doctor and all for less than a price of your daily coffee. The quality of their supplements is excellent and their recyclable packs means no more plastic bottles filling up your cupboard. Better for you, better for the planet. Head over to humanpeople.co slash functional health and use code functional health or one word at checkout to get 10% off any of their tests. And if you purchase any of their bundles, you'll get six months of a high quality omega-3 supplement absolutely free. 
Feel better, live healthier, and start your journey today at humanpeople.co slash functional health. Back to the show. Yeah, you hit on such a valuable point. Like, just because a protocol is well thought out doesn't mean it'll work for said person, patient X, because sometimes there's a bottleneck, a biochemical bottleneck. I always think, like, if you think of a sand egg timer, just because you add more sand in one side doesn't make it any quicker. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) There is a constant stream. Um, So, yeah. But trying to explain that to someone, sometimes it doesn't quite get through. So if you take a supplement, which, let's say, meant to improve cognition, it might not necessarily, if you don't have um, the ability to utilize it well, or the pathway is not working as well as it should, um, which I think is undervalued. Well, yeah, and of course, to to bring that back to the the subject matter, which I'm sure we'll get onto sooner. Yes. Right, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll often see people quote the research and say, "Well, look, um, boron has this this incredible effect on testosterone." Mm. Actual fact, you know, you can provide boron, and it's going to uh, enhance testosterone uh, by X percent. Well, that's all well and good, but what if that person is subject to a raging infection? Yeah. Do anything, not anything noticeable anyway. Or, you know, what if somebody is subject to a huge stress load, be it workload, be it lack of sleep, be it long gaps between meals, or as is most common, that sensory stress as in the the stress that's trapped within the body long term whatever it may be well if their heart rate variability is on the floor you're not going to see them respond in the way that somebody else who may be in otherwise decent shape but is a little short on boron that's Mm -hmm. two very very different outcomes that are entirely predictable so yeah this this idea of the paradigm that underscores evidence-based medicine that if we just do large enough sampling then we will get the one true answer the specific uh, response uh, that each supplement provides in a population and yet yeah okay maybe there is a 29.5 percent increase in free testosterone on average yeah. within that group of college students that actually volunteered for the trial but how does that actually tie in to the individual that we're working in who isn't part of that population, who has totally different schedule, totally different obstacles, different burdens on the system? Uh, but, yeah, it's now expecting a 29.5% increase in free testosterone because that's what the literature said was the average response in a group of 12 unrepresentative human beings. So, yeah, great proof of concept tells us what can be done but it won't tell us who is going to respond to it and when that's our job to uh quantify that and and we can do that but we have to ask that question exactly exactly and you're right we are we are going (laughs) dancing around the topic at hand so let's dive into it men's health i recently thought in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, because men seem to be more affected by COVID-19 than others. And it made me think, are men more prone to viral infections than others? And I looked it up and it looks like we are, right? We are are more prone to viral infections and more severe outcomes from viral infections. But then women, and these are the only two stats which I can recall, 
are more prone to things like autoimmune conditions and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And then later in life, osteoporosis, postmenopause, and things of like that. What health complaints or health conditions have you seen come up in clinic as they relate to men's health? So, yeah, when it, we talk about men's health, we are often very much uh, in, in swinging the testosterone conversation yes. straight away. And of course, yeah, testosterone is is a really big deal. But I think what is fascinating is to consider you know, those changes uh, between the two sexes, whether we look at it from an immune perspective, because testosterone is hugely active in the immune system. Uh, we often consider it to be all about sex drive and maybe motivation, confidence, mood, etc. And yeah, it definitely does all those things. But also, it's a powerful anti-inflammatory. Uh, mm. It's powerful enough to have uh, disease-modifying effects in, in a whole number of conditions, like rheumatoid arthritis. There's studies that demonstrate remission just from correcting low testosterone. So, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, but equally, yeah, when looking at how might testosterone impact on men's health, well, then we're looking... Yeah, into the central nervous system health. I think mm-hmm. that's huge. Big two-way connection between testosterone and dopamine. Dopamine affects testosterone. Testosterone affects dopamine. But then equally, yeah, health, the mechanics of the stress response has a big impact depending on our t- testosterone status. So, yeah, this is where testosterone's uh yeah well it has a, a a nice suppressive effect of interferon which typically is a really helpful thing at baseline and very much ties into that reduced risk of autoimmunity but does mean that your average male is just that little bit more vulnerable to viral infections and uh, so yeah these, these these are the the subtleties that play out and so always worth considering when we've got somebody sat across the room from us some of which weirdly enough a female and some of which weirdly enough a male and and so yeah one of many ways we can substratify them but arguably we're substratifying here on the most powerful hormones that we know and of course when your average woman has about 1.0 nanomoles per liter or at least that would be ideal, uh, of testosterone. And a, a healthy man is going to have 20-something nanomoles of, uh, of testosterone. That's a massive difference. So, yeah, straight away, it does pay to just give a little bit of consideration to well, what impact is, uh, is that likely to have. Yes, 100%. And those figures that you mentioned because we don't actually, I know we're focusing on men's health today, but testosterone in the, the 20 something mark, has that changed over time? Because I remember reading recently that something like testosterone levels, for example, my grandfather's would have been twice on average um, of mine at, at his, at my age, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I know there's a number of studies I've, I've spoken yes. about, the Peterson study from 2018, uh, and that, that was a really interesting one, just because 
it uh, compared the average testosterone levels uh, and and graphed them uh, by decade, uh, and then matched them uh, over the eighties, the nineties, and the noughties, and. It makes for fascinating, if worrying, reading, just because, yeah, we can see a real substantial drop. It's not halved, according to uh, those figures uh, that were collected in that study. But, yeah, we are looking at uh, a very substantial, about a third drop over the course of those two decades. So, yeah, there is something up, and I do not think the solution is what we're currently running with, which is well, why don't we just change the reference ranges and pretend <laughs> it's not a thing? That doesn't feel to me like a good solution. Um, I may or may not agree with you there. I think it's <laughs> obvious which one it is. Um, when you mentioned testosterone and dopamine, that's uh, fascinating to me because dopamine is obviously like the motivation and drive. Um, mm. element. And if testosterone is dropping, it makes me think, and this is not necessarily true but i'm just drawing a not conclusions hypothesis here that men and women in general went through a lot of hardship generations before us and seem to come out of that without any recorded mental health issues necessarily not to the same extent as we have now and testosterone plays into dopamine so much and lack of dopamine would reduce drive and then reduce drive. You have la lack of fulfillment, one can assume, because you're less able to do things that maybe one would like to do because you have lack of motivation. And then you can see this cycle panning out as, I, uh, as I'm picturing it now. Um, what Do you think there's any truth into something like that occurring? And do you see that in the people that you see now in clinic? Oh, well, yeah, and I think this is where it is relevant to dissect the, the the arguments that are put forward in the sense that you could put forward a very valid argument to say well look lack of sleep the average uh, length of sleep has declined in that time that has a very reliable effect of, of dropping testosterone like a rock but then you could also put forward the role of vitamin d mm. uh, magnesium status um, you could put forward rationale about the overuse of antibiotics the subsequent increase in the rate at which we all have dysbiosis in the intestinal microbiome you could uh, look at the amount of uh, horrendous chemicals in our food supply the lack of nutrients, the impact that has on the mitochondria, on, on insulin resistance, and a real big link there between testosterone levels. But yeah, so to uh, that stress link, so to that dopamine link. Key thing there with dopamine is that it is the neurotransmitter that, you know, while is often tagged as motivation, and it absolutely has a role to play there. Its evolutionary purpose is very much to give us a little bit of a dose of pleasure mm. in order that we carry on doing what we're doing uh, and thus can improve our future status. So right. huge uh, link there between the pursuit of food and sex, but equally the things that allow us easy access to those things. So social status and so on and so forth. So yeah, financial gain can be a huge 
motivating factor. Why? Because we get a dose of dopaminergic pleasure to tell us whatever we just did to win that win, do more of it. <laughs> um, but it's so linked into doing yes. and so linked to doing things to improve our future status. Hence, we can easily see from an evolutionary basis straight away why there's such a big link to low energy status, insulin uh, sensitivity issues, uh, thyroid signaling and dopaminergic activity. Mm -hmm. uh, the body is designed to downregulate dopamine at times when it's trying to stay alive now. Why reward the investment of energy to improve your future status when according to the other signals that the brain's receiving, there may well not be a future. So it's fascinating how in what we can dub a sick society, and I think that's kind of fair, that we would see dopamine become such a common issue. And it is a common issue, at least in the people that I'm seeing and I'm testing. Everyone who comes in has undergone an organic acids test without fail. And there are dopamine markers on that test. So it's not everyone, but it is a very, very common thing. So I can't really speak to how that may have been, say, 20 years ago, um, because I've only been doing this 17 years. <laughs> uh, but certainly there is, yeah, a, a separate question we could pose as to, what's going on with our dopamine status mm -hmm. um, and yeah it's fair to say that anybody on low dopamine status well we've got this inbuilt desire inbuilt drive to try and correct it even if it's only a temporary fix even if that's having a great sugar rush which gives us the the dopamine or whether it is doing a little bit swiping and a bit more swiping uh, yeah. getting a few more likes yeah whether it is that uh yeah need for some sort of some sort of hit um and we can see that play out in all corners of society and yeah you can't really consider dopamine without also considering its role on testosterone too because it is such a strong link yes you mentioned social media there. It's a topic that I wasn't necessarily going to touch upon, um, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. Do you see that the state of dopamine status and maybe testosterone interplays, and this be, might be quite a complex question, I've never read anything on it, interplays with how social media use, essentially? Well, I know that the social media companies have invested very heavily in the behavioral science and yeah, a lot of their design features are very much predicated on inducing that dopamine rush in the users. Um, we have to acknowledge that these are extremely well-funded teams that are using a lot of scientific principles to continually target uh, users, which of course includes teenagers with developing minds. And I recall the, uh, the, the, the phrase uh, that was, uh, was laid out many years ago to think, well, how are we considering the role that this is having in the development of uh, immature nervous systems? 
you know, our brains continue to develop until the age of 25. So, you know, would we leave a little bag of cocaine out uh, on the kitchen table and, and tell our teenage children that, look, there's going to be hard days. And when you have a hard day, give yourself a little bump, take the edge off, you know, just do what you need to do to uh, have, have that, that moment, settle yourself uh, and then come to dinner. We wouldn't. Um, and so it is that uh, great example of, of a technology that nobody in 2004 would have ever have predicted that this is how it would have played out. And it crept in so subtly to the point that it's just part of our life and we often accept that now. But, uh, but yeah, it, I think it is time to reconsider, well, what's going on? Because when I speak to people who do specialise in that area of more uh, mental health on, on, on a society-wide level, they are often concerned about the individuals who are leaving the education system now. And the phrase that always stands out is here is the first population that can't handle life. Mm. And of course, it's a massive generalisation. I get to speak to a lot of young people who are eloquent and on the ball and very admirable. But we're talking about general patterns and that does worry me. It worries me too. <laughs> Without making it, a yeah, and I don't have a solution for it either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Wrong and I think it's is... part of the problem as well, in the sense that yes, it is contributing, but would we have uh, so much of a problem caused by that if we had young people who were still very much hanging around with their friends in person? you know, doing that thing which is considered so dangerous now, which is walking around three roads to knock on the door of your friends and then going around and kicking an actual ball on actual grass. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does feel like the less time children spend with their peers, the less free-range children that we've got, Mm. the less they are able to use their brains and develop in the way that nature had intended. And we can only expect consequences from that. And the consequences are everywhere. They're in front of our eyes, but they're not necessarily consequences that lend themselves to quantification. There's no easy number. And that seems to hold back the discussion to, to some extent. But, uh, but yeah, how much of that ties into metabolic challenges to changes in neurochemistry, the dopaminergic issues that we're talking about. And equally, how much does the junk food, the poor quality sleep, all of that blue light before bedtime, how is that then impacting on hormonal status and leaving them in need of further hits to, to boost the dopamine and to give them some sort of temporary balance that takes them through the day? These are more questions than they are answers, but they sound like it's a good time to ask the questions. Absolutely. I completely agree. And e even from personal experience, I've noticed that if I'm not motivated to do anything, I can scroll on my phone. 
you know, I can scroll social media and something that I now do at work because I have to, because I've recognized it's so addictive and I'll do it without noticing, take my phone out of my mm. pocket and scroll. Is I just put it on airplane mode, put it in a drawer and leave it yeah. until it's needed. Um, and people can call me on, well, we've got a, an instant messaging app. Okay. They can call me on there. That's absolutely fine. But they cannot, my social media isn't on and they cannot like um, basically or social media can't bombard me with these constant messages and updates and things of that nature, stuff which I'm not interested in. But, no, you in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's it. And then I'm on You're there, missing and... out. <laughs> that is it. That's how they do it. FOMO. It's a real thing. It is a real it thing, does yeah. It drive that. Um, on the topic of men's health. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you've, you've mentioned... Um, testosterone is a huge interplay between different conditions and also dopamine is genetics a big part in that as well in terms of the variability between um testosterone dysregulation maybe and also dopamine so <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily be looking into genetics um as the first second or third line when when tending to testosterone it's fair to say that there are multiple genetic uh, issues that could potentially play a role with testosterone. And this is where anything that results in undue inflammation mm -hmm. can have a massive role of testosterone. Anything that influences energy metabolism, that would certainly play a role. So to, to be specific on that one, we hear a lot about the genes like MTHFR. It yes. is the, uh, the, the, the hallowed um, favorite child of anyone who's done a, a 23andMe test. But what I think is probably most interesting is worthwhile touching on the BCMO gene. This is the beta carotene mm. monooxygenase yes. gene, which turns carotenes from plants into retinol which is to say real vitamin A that the body can use. And approximately 40% of the population have that mutation in the gene, which means it just doesn't work very well. You know, added to that, if you have any sort of disruption in the gut that impacts on bile release, well, bile is a cofactor within the reaction. So even with people who do have the stronger genetic setup there, you're still probably not going to convert the carotenes into vitamin A very effectively. But nonetheless, here is a massive chunk of the population who come what may, no matter what they do, no matter how they optimize their digestion or bile release, they're never gonna be able to turn carotenoids from plants into real vitamin A. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, they have to eat the vitamin A, which means they have to eat liver. So of course it wasn't a problem for generations because everybody did it, sometimes begrudgingly, but Nonetheless, they did, but in the last 30, 40 years, suddenly it is now the norm to not eat liver. And you would anticipate that's going to have a whole host of negative effects on the population. And sure enough, we're seeing those exact things you'd expect. Uh, but I mentioned that because vitamin A is so relevant in regards to maintaining the membrane health, so very relevant at the gut lining, without which we are going to be leaving ourselves vulnerable to increased 
intestinal permeability, suddenly we're going to pay a big cost for any imbalances that are in the gut because what would otherwise be constrained within the gut is no longer constrained and is now getting into the bloodstream. It's now interacting with our immune system and it's causing a whole host of inflammatory reactions. On top of that, membrane health, mitochondria, what is very rarely touched on is how your mitochondria produces energy through creating an electrochemical gradient across a membrane. Now, what happens if the membrane health there is compromised? Energy production is compromised. So here's just two examples of systemic issues from one gene, one gene alone that uh, hasn't been integrated into our thinking. And suddenly, yeah, we've got more inflammation, we've got lower energy production, both of which will have a devastating effect on testosterone. And there's further direct effects of vitamin A, very important to allow for the production of IL-10, which is one of our uh, cytokines, our immune system messengers. But this one promotes immunotolerance. This one dampens down overreactions. So, yeah, that's just one one aspect. So, yeah, that demonstrates to me how these things can uh, play a big role. But, yeah, my thinking when it comes to any individual with low testosterone, I'm first looking at, okay, well, is there signs that inflammation is playing a role here? Is there any signs or any data from the test that shows that poor dopamine status is playing a role? What about insulin signaling? What about magnesium, zinc, boron, vitamin D. In any case, those will normally give me points that I can work backwards from. And one of those ways that I will end up working backwards will take me right back to uh, the, the vitamin A. So yeah, it, it isn't one of the first questions I would ask, but absolutely can play a role. Right. I see. I would love to come back to nutrients um, but I would just like to touch upon when you mentioned clinical tests that you're looking at for dopamine status and through mm. the organic acids tests and also testosterone status because there's different forms um, and sex hormone binding globulin also plays mm -hmm. a role there, etc. And also the testosterone to estrogen ratio, etc., etc. It'd be good to look at what you're identifying and then maybe yeah. the reference range that you'd look for as well. And is that slightly mm. different to what's on the panel? So, yeah, when it comes to the most obvious test for is testosterone an issue or not, you're going to look at a blood test. Of course, it would normally follow some screening. For example, does this individual have poor focus, mm. low mood? Do they have altered body composition? Have they become more doughy? Do they have lower red blood counts? Very few people link testosterone into uh, erythropoiesis, that is the production of red blood cells, but it's a big thing. And uh, yeah, so that, that's another area. Um, altered hair growth, yeah, sleep quality, reduced athletic output, reduced recovery, and of course, the most obvious one of all, sex drive. So in those scenarios, that's where we would likely uh, want to consider the role of testosterone. And so, yeah, there's two... Uh, standard ways that we can do that testing. One of which would be good old blood testing, 
-hmm. And of course, within that zone, you can get really basic insufficient testing. For example, sometimes have people come to me who had their testosterone checked and it was okay. Why? Because they had a single measure of testosterone, which is almost useless. Um, or we can do a blood panel where we'll look at testosterone, but also dihydrotestosterone and estrogen. These are two hormones that testosterone can be converted into. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we'll have a lower testosterone because it's being converted into one or both of these downstream test uh, downstream hormones um but we'll also want to take a look at progesterone mm. prolactin and we'll, we'll talk about why that's important um but also shbg sex hormone binding globulin if you've got too much sex hormone binding globulin well guess what it binds to sex hormones and means they're just not available to do their job hence you could have totally normal testosterone levels and yet your free testosterone is on the floor and you're having all of those symptoms that I mentioned. Uh, and the other markers I'd look for in a blood test would be LH and FSH. So luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, uh, which represent the stimulation going from brain down to the testes. So, yeah, this is where if you've got testosterone, you're going to look at a very different approach mm -hmm. uh, if, this is due to poor stimulation to the testosterone, in which case we know the brain is not asking the testes to do the job. It doesn't want them to do the job right now, or potentially it can't. Versus a time when there's low testosterone with high DHT and high estrogen, which is to say there's enough stimulation, there's enough production, but it's leaking into other forms. So yeah, that would be a typical blood panel that I would look at and to answer one of the questions you laid up there, it is categorically not about the reference range because depending <laughs> on the lab, uh, yeah, you may well have a reference range of nine to 30 mm -hmm. or it could be 11 to 33 nanomoles per liter. But that is a range that represents 97.5% of all men. And that's, that's all men, regardless of their age. There's no age range that substratifies there. So you can have a 20-year-old uh, male going into the doctor's office, and they've actually had this where he came back at 9.2 nanomoles per litre, which is right. so much lower than we'd want in a young man. Yeah. And the doctor says, ah, oh, it's kind of a shame it wasn't a bit lower, because if it was that bit lower, I could have helped you. Um, but I can't. So, and that was that. And it really speaks to the absurdity of this reference range based approach. We might as well call it what it is, paint by numbers. If it's in, uh, then it's okay. If it's out, it's not. Um, so yeah, I would always want to see in any sort of youngish, healthy male, um, and of course, you know, where, where do we stop being young? And when I was a teenager, I thought 37 was really, really old. <laughs> uh, um, I'm 37 now, so it turns out it's not. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'd want to see it in the 20s. Now, if somebody was 
that much older, maybe in their 60s and the 70s, mm-hmm. then it would be more circumstance specific. So if they're a middle of the team, 15, 16, and they're feeling decent, great. Even if they're down at 13, 14, but they were feeling okay, I'd probably not be inclined to go hunting for levers that we can deploy there to, to bump it up unless they were really keen on doing so. Um, but yeah, uh, that that's why I'd want it. 20s 20 something sounds good to me and that ties in very reliably with the sort of outcomes that we want feeling good performing well recovering quickly from exercise and all of the rest of the things that come with it so yeah that would be the blood test there's also the dutch panel as well which is a great test you gain some things you lose uh, yeah, others. Just to focus, there's a couple of areas that I'd like to touch upon there, but one of them is the the test. Are you, you specifically looking at free testosterone for that 20s range? Yeah, yeah. So that's what's going to uh, be relevant mm-hmm. for, for what we want to know. Now, the level of DHT and estrogen is also relevant too. Yeah. Um, well, well, again, it, it, the total testosterone helps to tell us is there enough production? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, are the testes getting the stimulation? Are they able to respond to that? So, yeah, it's still relevant. But when it comes down to what's having an effect in this man's body, then it's the free hormones that are relevant because if they're not free, they can't do the job. So that's where we'll always want to look at the whole picture. What's going on here? But then why? And it's when we ask that second question, that's when it's worthwhile, again, substratifying between those with low testosterone production versus those with good testosterone production, but immediate loss of that testosterone into either DHT or estrogen. And of course, depending on which one of those or both is occurring, that's when we'll see different pictures we'll see a very different pattern in terms of how do they feel and what symptoms they're seeing. Right, that's really good to know because I I know people, I mean, you can see this, people may have heard this if they're into the health and fitness and steroid use can lead to gynecomastia and that's because Mm. the the huge increase in testosterone also increases aromatase to my knowledge, which is the one, the enzyme which converts testosterone into estrogen. That's right. So, yeah, so a lot of uh, bodybuilders, but also other athletes, let's be honest, (laughs) not just bodybuilders who may uh, make use of testosterone supplementation, um, if we can euphemistically call it that. Um, But, uh, yeah, so when you pump up the testosterone levels to especially high levels, there's more opportunity for that enzyme, the aromatase enzyme, to then convert it into estrogen. Um, so that's why a lot of uh, yeah bodybuilders, athletes who, who are using anabolic steroids will also take aromatase inhibitor drugs to stop that from happening. Um, and they'll often use that during the cycle and then as part of their post-cycle therapy. That being said, we can still see problems with higher levels of aromatase mm-hmm. in men who aren't using exogenous sources of testosterone and when we see that that's a massive clue for one or or, or both of of two issues one being insulin sensitivity 
Right. And the other one being good old stress. So you, if you have excess insulin activity uh, in, in those uh, adipose cells, the fat cells, yeah. then that's where a lot of the estrogen is formed in a man's body, in those fat cells. And yes, uh, obese men are much more likely to have low testosterone for this very reason. Their fat cells take the testosterone that's there, convert it into estrogen, and that estrogen is then released into circulation where it comes back to our brain, the hypothalamus, the, the manager of our entire hormonal status, and it shuts down the activity. It's that negative feedback loop, and estrogen is very powerful in doing that, hence why the whole system goes into something of a slumber and we have less testosterone as a result. So that's actually quite a common pattern with obese men. But equally, if there's uh, yeah that excess insulin output, while it actually increases testosterone in women via activities of the ovaries, in men, uh, insulin and that excess insulin availability that we see, that actually drives up estrogen because it switches on that aromatase enzyme at fat cells. And suddenly, yeah, we have more estrogen, which does have a lot of protective roles in these challenging and potentially overwhelming situations. So it's not a faulty design by the body, mm. as is always the case, it seems. Um, but yeah, that's likely to not only drive up the likelihood of estrogen-linked issues, which typically center on sleep um, and yeah, agitation, uh, but can very easily change body composition and yeah, potentially gynecomastia. That's where yeah, we can easily see this uh, either through those insulin issues, but yeah, stress, it's typically never part of the discussion mm. uh, when we see this raised estrogen in men. In actual fact, the discussion is normally so centered on one question. What, what dose of resveratrol should I take? But resveratrol is great for a lot of things. It's just not good as an aromatase inhibitor. Um, yeah, 90s bro science. Well, it doesn't always translate to the front line and aromatase is a very good example of that. Right, so two cases there. These are, these are really good examples actually because it's making me think a person with a higher body fat percentage, it's almost a, um, a double whammy in a sense, because normally they're eating excess carbohydrates and therefore you've got that insulin signaling. But adiposity in and of itself increases estrogen production, to my knowledge. Um, yeah. So you'd have that where you're getting, so even if you change your diet, so you may be spiking insulin less, but you're eating isocaloric to what you were before, you might not reduce the estrogen as much as you'd expect because you still got that increased in adiposity, spouting out inflammatory cytokines and estrogen, et cetera. Mm. Well, yeah, and this is where um, this idea of <laughs> you just need to eat less. It's calories in and calories out. Whilst it is technically true, it doesn't ever seem to... <laughs> pay any recognition to the two sides of that equation. Mm -hmm. What happens if you reduce calories by 40%? Your metabolic rate drops by 
So, yes, you can force the body into losing a tiny little bit of fat, but at the cost of feeling awful, often having terrible sleep, mm-hmm. uh, poor brain function, reduced investments in detoxification and digestion. So you're buying yourself a future of potential problems. Not only that, it's not likely to even help because now the body is actually increasing its rate of fat storage enzymes and it's trying desperately to ensure that when you do eventually crack from this unsustainable diet and if you're human you will (laughs) then it's going to ensure that that excess that it's finally waited for is deposited in the areas that need it the most that is the fat cells this is your insurance policy because if all of the environmental signals tell the central nervous system that starvation is now a material risk, it will do what it's designed to do and protect you against future starvation, which is a cool system. But yet here we are 160 years after the first dietary book ever uh, put (laughs) forward the hypothesis that maybe eating less is going to be the answer to obesity or as it was called then corpulence. (laughs) I prefer that word. But uh, yeah, here we are. How many tens of billions of research dollars have been spent trying to get a single randomized controlled trial to show long-term benefits of calorie-controlled diets? Not one has ever managed to do it. Um, The the, the evidence is all around us. Just walk up and down a high street. Uh, stand outside a Greg's, anyone you want, because there's normally one every hundred meters, it seems. Um, it's it's not working. Um, but equally, at the same time, I think there's an opportunity to discuss, well, once obesity is present, once the fat cells have passed a certain threshold, you do now have a major disadvantage in resolving the the metabolic challenges that come with that because okay you've got excess fat cells so you've also got high levels of leptin which will guarantee leptin resistance leptin is such an important signal to your hypothalamus which also manages your energy budget that it's not able to deliver its signal effectively so suddenly you now need to eat more for your brain to feel that it has enough energy to give permission for all the uh, pathways and all the organ systems that need that energy. In other words, if you eat less, you will now force your body into a stressful state. And so you'll simply change the number of problems that we're getting. So this is where often having to undertake a full reset, remove all of the obvious obstacles, whether they be mitochondrial activity. What if this individual had certain gut bacteria that mean they're now low in B2? Mm -hmm. Normally a dietary thing when I find low B2. What if there's any inflammatory issues that are disturbing methylation in a way that now they don't form CoQ10 or carnitine? That's going to mess with them. What if that vitamin A thing that we spoke about? What if they're not eating the liver and they don't have the copper? They can't use oxygen effectively, so on and so forth. I've never met anybody who doesn't have multiple obstacles in this regard. So going into this challenge and then strapping 
um, a, uh, a parachute on your back it, and, and trying to run forward. It, it's really hamstringing us to the point that, yeah, first let's take away those obstacles and then let's actually acknowledge the self-perpetuating uh, self cycle that comes with obesity because it is actually something that can be reliably and methodically deactivated but it mm. needs to involve a scenario where insulin levels are low and are kept low for a sustained period of time often it actually only needs about 12 weeks but it will often take uh, several months to tend effectively to the obstacles that allow us to get there stress adrenaline pushes up uh blood sugar levels very effectively and guess what follows that insulin mm -hmm. guess what follows that fat storage guess what follows that more leptin we've got multiple factors contributing you mentioned the role of inflammation and how fat cells turns out they're not just this passive storage site for energy they're metabolically active they are a key component of our immune system and especially if there's abdominal fat well nobody seems to ever talk about these things like il7 the way that that will induce uh, excess activity at the thymus to the point that we not only have too much inflammatory cytokines but we also have too much anti-inflammatory cytokines working against one another in a way that keeps people in a low-grade inflammatory state all the time with no ability to actually win the wars that are needed but no opportunity to have the anti-inflammatory cytokines mm -hmm. do what they want to do and bring peace they're constantly stuck in the middle of that cycle either way i could i could go on and name all the uh, various <laughs> different zones that are they're contributing but we need to take care of stress and blood sugar level impacts of that we need to take care of any factors that influence thyroid signaling specifically that conversion of t4 the inactive hormone mm -hmm. into t3 the active one which i believe you have a podcast on that um <laughs> But uh, yeah, and that sleep, that's, that's inflammatory events, that's infections, that's anything that impacts on your energy budget. Um, but then also, yeah, to tend to that, that insulin status, which is easy, uh, easily done with a ketogenic diet. Uh, it's not the only way to do it, but often it's, it's by far and away the, the quickest and the simplest, even though it is unappealing to me, which I understand. Yeah, I understand that. It's definitely uh, is a problem socially sometimes, I think. Having, yeah. having tried it a few times, um, I quite like it, the way it makes me feel. But I think, yeah, if you're going out for a meal, your options can be very limited. It's not impossible. This is it. Yeah, it's never impossible, but it is off and inconvenience and of course it depends on where you go and it yeah. depends on you know, that what's on the menu who person. you're with um <laughs> uh, yeah obviously i always want to be aware that you know my world is likely going to be slightly different in that regard i i will sometimes eat keto i'll sometimes eat carb-based on a standard week, I'll, I'll, I'll typically uh, be spending some days uh, in a ketogenic state. Uh, other weeks, not at all. Depends more so on how am I training and uh, if I'm playing football, then, then I'm carving for that. But yeah, nonetheless, I, I recognize that doing what I do, 
most of my friends don't ever really want to ask me, why are you ordering that? Why are you eating that? Because <laughs> they want to hear the lecture. Yeah. And that's fine. So I, they don't ask and well. I don't tell. Yeah, that's true. I, but I love trying, trying new things. And to your point before, in terms of dietary strategies, I remember reading a study, the Diet Fits study, which you can link to. Um, and basically it just identifies that you tried a low carb diet and then a high carb, low fat diet. Mm. So low carb, high fat, and also high carb, low fat. Did I say that right? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always get them confused. And what they basically found is that nearly comparable results, um, in terms of weight loss, low carb, it's a little bit better, I think, but in terms of triglyceride levels dropping, et cetera, as you mm. probably expect on most people in this field. But you just identify that it doesn't really matter which diet you follow as long as you can follow it, right? Because the people who dropped out, dropped out and therefore probably didn't lose much weight or any weight at all. And it just basically says to me that it needs to be individualized, right, for that person. And for me, I figured out that I respond well to higher protein and I don't like intermittent fasting as much as other people. So I might do it a couple of days a week, but I respond well to longer fasts, 24 hours, 36 hours, maybe dinner two, and then 24 hours and then the extra 12 until breakfast the following day. Um, and I can do that relatively easy, but intermittent fasting, I tend to lose a bit of focus there. Don't know why, mm. but then you just, it's the point of individualizing it to yourself. Well, it is. And it just speaks to this huge and increasing problem that comes with blind acceptance of the evidence-based medicine model. Mm. And of course, on the surface, you know, who could possibly be against the use of evidence? Fortunately, that's not what evidence-based medicine actually is. Yes, it relates uh, to the use of, of evidence, but there is a very specific hierarchy in the evidence, um, which is to say that if there have been multiple uh, traditional healing systems that have been built up over many thousands of years with the tradition uh, refined generation by generation. And these multiple healing systems from various different corners of the globe have all come to the same conclusion that you know, a particular herb will be ideal for a particular problem. They never met one another and yet they've all come to that same conclusion. Well, unfortunately, that does not count mm -hmm. in evidence-based medicine because that is uh, based on the practitioner's experience. There is absolutely no accounting for what has been working for us for a long time. And of course, I think there's you know, philosophical uh, discussions that can be had there. There can be weaknesses. We can end up tricking ourselves. We can find that actually it was the ceremonial uh, events that led up to the delivery of that herb that were actually key. But, but I digress. If it's consistently working in all these environments, do we just want to throw out that knowledge? Mm. That's one. But possibly the biggest problem of all comes from the way that this is a frequentist approach. That is to say, it is underpinned by the belief that as long as we do enough sampling, as long as we get a big enough sample size, 
we will overcome sampling error and we will be able to determine the one true effect of this intervention. Input versus output. Uh, the most frequent response is the correct one. And so, yeah, they'll average that out. And so what you end up finding, if there's a group of 12 people, four of them saw this intervention spike their insulin, four of them saw it reduce their insulin, four of them saw no change. Well, on average, it does nothing, even though it can have a massive effect in two thirds of people involved in the trial. But on average, the effect was close to zero. And thus, it is considered that this intervention does not have any effect on insulin when that was blatantly untrue for the majority of people enrolled in that very trial. So, yeah, this is a big problem in the sense that, yeah, intermittent fasting, you mentioned that it's a fantastic tool, one that is very reliable in inducing autophagy, that mm. process of cellular rejuvenation, the recycling process. Let's get rid of the old uh, mitochondria and get new shiny ones. That's yeah. great. Purge senescent but... cells and that kind of thing. And yeah, I actually misspoke exactly. before because I meant time-restricted eating during the week. I don't necessarily do well on, but intermittent fasts, yeah, that's the one. That yeah, and, and it's, it's a, a very valid tool. And yet a lot of people, certainly a lot of people that I see who are looking to do it, really enthusiastic about the benefit to maybe one of their friends has done it and has noticed feeling better, brighter, sharper has come back with these positive reports. But if your energy systems are compromised, if your stress response is overactive, you haven't got access to this effective detoxification process, no matter what you do, you'll still get the stress of intermittent fasting. So that balance between, yeah, moderate stress, substantial benefit, which may well be the case for your metabolically mm. healthy neighbor. Well, if you have any challenges in those areas, well, you may have an exaggerated cost, big stress and near zero benefit. And that's where, yeah, we've got to, um, we've got to recognize that these studies tell us very interesting things and they give us great proof of concepts of how certain interventions can be leveraged for the outcomes we want but we still need to recognize the mechanism and if that mechanism requires that we've got a certain amount of resources or if that mechanism is shut down by excessive inflammatory cytokine activity or if it requires cofactors that just aren't available mm. then it would be naive to just try and deploy it on the basis that oh it it improved insulin sensitivity by 90 percent no it did that on average the group that was studied yeah um so not a single one of the group studied actually saw a 19 percent drop not one of them did um and equally they're entirely unrepresentative in many cases so yeah that that's my point just because again to, to leave this back to testosterone we know that low calories is one of the easiest ways to drop testosterone to the floor. Mm -hmm. um, it, nutritional status is so, so important there. Um, and the two big factors there is fat intake, especially saturated fat intake, 
um, and total calorific intake. So, uh, yeah, there's one study from actually only a couple of years back that saw as soon as uh, individuals reduced their calorific intake, and it was 13 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, as far as I recall. There was a substantial drop in the luteinizing hormone, that, that hormone that's sent to stimulate the testes. Um, and uh, I remember another, another study uh, on bodybuilders which showed that their leptin and testosterone stages took months to recover uh, post-competition, which of course is, is one of the, the best examples we're going to see of a sustained and intense dieting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, weight loss will always increase SHBG. So yeah, we, we need to bear these in mind uh, because so often people end up with these collection of pet ideas that, okay, I want high testosterone, so I'm going to slam 50 milligrams of zinc every night before bed. P.S. Never do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm also going to you know, focus on the vitamin D. I'm going to get the red light shine out on my balls, um, <laughs> all of the rest of it. And they're like, oh, well, I also want to do intermittent fasting because, yeah, I want to get shredded. And that seems like it's good for mitochondria and weight loss and all this. And, and they're, they're not coherent. Mm. Uh, so this is where we need to assess what are the obstacles that are in place in each individual um yeah and of course if, if that's relating to testosterone then yeah let, let's start with the big ones energy signaling massive inflammation massive dopamine that's a big deal stress nutritional status and and uh yeah that would be where i would begin um, and, and if we actually do any sort of reasonable digging in those areas, we're going to come away with a very clear picture of, yeah, where will the victory be won in this individual? We can now start building a, a customized plan. But this idea of this is good. So do that. Very flawed. Yes. Yes, of course. I completely agree with you there. And it was interesting what you said about calorie restriction, because I definitely recognize when I was younger, I was like, I didn't know a lot about nutrition then. I got into nutrition um, partly, not completely, but partly due to aesthetic purposes. Wanted to look good naked. Essentially the reason, right? Solid aim. <laughs> Vanity. So uh, yeah. high protein, low fat, low carb. That is not very good of anything, for anything, unless you just want to get really lean. Um, I don't recommend that to anyone, but I recognize now what I was doing and my dopamine, my motivation and drive was non-existent. And I think my testosterone must have been extremely low because I was experiencing a lot of the things that we have spoken about today as well um, in my teenage years. And I look back now, it's like, I wish someone could have told me what I was doing you know? Oh, is that not a sign that you have learned something important? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And hopefully this podcast will help people if they're in that situation or someone can pass it on. Um, You mentioned food um, and nutrients, and it'd be good Mm. just to touch upon those. And I wanted to bring up something because you just jogged my memory. We talked about magnesium, zinc, uh, Mm. what a good one to say, selenium, 
And I think iron probably is involved within that as well. Um, but these are all uh, blocked, in a sense, by anti-nutrients in food. And these anti-nutrients come from plants. And what's mm. pushed now is a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if there was there is something yeah. there. And I've not looked into this, but this is something, you know, I'm just sharing you ideas as they it's come into my head. you say that? Because I have. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely... That was not planned, by the way. Can I just, <laughs> can I just say that? <laughs> yeah, it is definitely the case that yeah, I have worked with a lot of individuals over the years who are on either a, a plant-based diet, as in only plants, as in vegan, um, but also what I would call plant-based, which is based on plants, but also has a little bit of, of other things as well. Um, and the interesting thing is I would hypothesize that individuals who are metabolically healthy, that don't have that BCMO mutation or mm-hmm. anything else that would compromise the, the key nutrients, uh, I would hypothesize that you can maintain good health on a vegan diet. Although it is important to share that having trialed uh, the, the protocols that I use with a lot of vegan individuals, I've never seen anyone recover from poor health on a vegan diet. And of course it makes sense in, in that even if we look at, say, fatty acids, uh, you, you are depending on the plant form of these fatty acids each and every time uh, you're, you're looking at a vegan diet. They need to be converted into the EPA, the DHA, and that's fine. We've got enzymes to do that, but how efficient are they? They'll vary from one person to the next, and they are less efficient in men. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also depend on a whole number of cofactors, which is a lot of minerals, especially magnesium. But thyroid activity is a really big deal. Now, thyroid uh, signaling uh, will almost always be compromised in any individual with a metabolic challenge. And that's not to say that their thyroid gland is a problem. Normally, it's absolutely fine. Uh, but there are so many ways that that T4, the inactive hormone, can uh, then stutter in being converted into T3, the active hormone, poor sleep, uh, any change in mitochondrial activity, stress, inflammation. Now, these are the real centerpieces of any long-term health challenges. So, yeah, straight away, can we expect good conversion into the right uh, levels of fatty acids? Um, no, but equally, yeah, I offer that as an example because there's so many ways in which the body recycles and recovers uh, a lot of the minerals and vitamins that it uses. But those very same pathways are going to suffer when the body is desperately trying to survive the day rather than invest in future health. So... Yeah, what's that going to do to the vitamin A, the B12, the zinc, the iron, the copper, the choline, the creatine, carnitine, carnosine, CoQ10, taurine, methionine, Mm -hmm. glycine, calcium, vanadium, chromium, iodine, uh, those fatty acids, um, plus the stearic acid, sphingolipids. 
there's there's a lot there that is difficult to make up. But to to go back to one really easy to grasp concept: saturated fats. Mm-hmm. Saturated fats are really really big deal when it comes to testosterone. Uh, all fats seem to be highly relevant, but saturated fats in particular, because unlike the polyunsaturated fats, they actually tend to linger in the bloodstream for longer. Hence why we have better society from eating saturated fats. And there's, there's a good study with children who put butter on their uh, potato versus uh, other options. And suddenly they were satisfied for longer. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's one of many studies that shows that. But yeah, saturated fats are so key because they don't enter fat cells so well. And that means they linger in the bloodstream uh, much more effectively, which is one of the reasons why um, nutritional scientists suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect back in the 70s and 80s thought that, oh, saturated fats are bad because they boost cholesterol. Um, Well, yes, they do boost cholesterol. For two reasons. One, they're not going straight into the fat cells with the same ease that polyunsaturates do. Mm-hmm. And two, they're not being oxidized in the same way. So you're not getting the same level of oxidized cholesterol. Imagine if you've had a, a ton of sunflower oil, you'll get a little bit of cholesterol and you'll get a lot of oxidized cholesterol. Eat the same amount of butter, you get minimal oxidized cholesterol and a, a higher level of cholesterol. Why do the arguments uh, you know, suggest that cholesterol is bad and we need to avoid it? Because it's not bad. It can be if it converts into oxidized cholesterol. That's a potential problem. But here is this, this idea that says cholesterol, eating saturated fats is bad because it pushes your cholesterol up. And cholesterol is bad because it could turn into oxidized cholesterol. We're already there with the polyunsaturates. Um, but they said, yeah, but it, it, it's not driving up the precursor in the same way. So it must be better for you, right? Yeah. Um, but I digress. Having that cholesterol, having that fat uh, around in the bloodstream for longer, that's why you can get a better increase in cholesterol because there's more energy available. The liver can access more energy, but that means more energy is arriving mm-hmm. at the liver and thus it is well satisfied and it no longer has to deploy this energy recovery process, which is where we see SHBG levels rise to just dampen down on all testosterone or testosterone linked behavior. So, so yeah, that was a few different angles that I ran around with, uh, but, (laughs) uh, but yeah, saturated fats are massively important for health. And this idea that they were good for us for the first 300 and and 99,000 years of human evolution, but they became unhealthy in 1970. It's it's absurd. Plus, look at the correlations. Correlation is not causation. This is very important. But as soon as we started eating more polyunsaturates and dropping down the amount of saturates, what happened? Exactly what you'd expect. People's metabolisms started getting slammed. You know, is there a single study that proves that uh, a saturated fat in the normal levels that humans have consumed for a long period of time has any negative health effects? No, there never will be. Um, yeah, you can get some sort of obscure links. Oh, uh, yeah, it was associated with 
having a Mercedes is associated yeah. with living longer. But there's but... plenty of meta-analysis which have debunked that now. You know, even the exactly. association. You'll, you'll find one study, which, you know, there's several studies which show it, but there's many more that don't. Um, well, exactly. And, yeah, you can find these correlations. Um, and, yeah, and even yeah, cholesterol studies are, I mean, we're going to go off on one here but even cholesterol studies are, are so mixed and it de normally depends on what the dogma was at the time because it, people look at people always talk about the weight of the evidence right mm -hmm. but if you're always looking at one through the evidence through one lens right you're always going to see the same thing and in areas like Hong Kong, for example, with the, the highest meat consumption per capita and mm. the high, one of the highest saturated fat consumptions, they don't, they don't have these risks of heart disease. They have actually extreme longevity, one of the highest um, uh, life expectancies in the world. And they eat something like two pounds per, um, per person a day of meat. Like, you just can't... You, you can't never get to up. hear about that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And it, it perplexes me that we just, we talk about it as if it's the only way to health. And it's not. And I, for some reason, hardly, I mean, it's getting better now, but we don't mention about what you might have with the saturated fat, which is the portions of chips fried in seed oils. Uh, oh. You know what I mean? So if you're having a steak, a ribeye, higher in saturated fat than most most meats, let's say, mm. sounds very good, but chips next to it. And we look at the steak as the villain here, but not necessarily the chips. Well, exactly. There's um, those studies which show, I remember commenting on uh, one study in the Daily Mail, uh, misquoted me somewhat, which is weird for such a, a respected journalistic <laughs> organization such as the Daily Mail. Who weirdly haven't asked for my comments at any point in the last couple of years with that. Um, but uh, yeah, this was on a, a study which showed an association between those who responded to a survey to say that they'd had an average of two servings of red meat per day or more versus those that had low consumption. No, um, no attempt to separate. Is that McDonald's? Is that yeah, me? Processed meat, or is that you know, grass-fed steak with broccoli? Yeah, it should be a very different matter. And I mean, I think there's also the the, the publication bias. I mean, there's, there's that. Yeah, um, yeah, that's... The, the the absolute ridiculous nature of the Eat Lancet report uh, in 2019, which was then the platform to go lockstep with that Game Changers documentary, if we can call it a documentary. Um, it was more entertainment uh, than anything else. Pull, pull out the LDL cardiovascular disease game changers um, <laughs> at a different on a different podcast. Cause we we will get we will we won't go into there. Uh, but yes, it it was very very relevant in that they spent all these hundreds of pages building a report without providing any evidence that meat or saturated fat was actually bad for us. But a lot of um, pretty pictures. <laughs> there, like... was, there was some good graphics, yeah. <laughs> so um, and great PR, yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, just a bizarre time to be alive mm. uh, when it comes to dietary recommendations. Um, yeah, are these the people that we want 
to be making recommendations and do we think that destroying entire ecosystems to get those grains out of the ground poisoning various species with the pesticides the fungicides the herbicides and the fish due to the runoff driving out voles and all the other animals into the arms of predators elsewhere uh, killing off all the topsoil through the tilling that nobody seems to want to talk about because we want a black and white solution here should we do all that in order to grow the inputs for lab grow meat which still requires energy guys yeah where you, you, can you get can't get energy out of nothing yeah um it still has to eat um yeah or grass-fed regenerative agriculture put carbon dioxide nitrogen back into the soil yeah, protect so the systems carbon, yeah the only downside is that multinational corporations don't actually get to control everything that we eat. I don't see that as a downside, not for us. But again, we, we could go off on that all day. But Yeah, I will actually link to, because this might be new to some people, so I will link to the regenerative agriculture farm that I know of, White Oak Pastures, in the show notes. And they show how they can sequester more carbon and um, in their burger, for example, compared to a Beyond Burger, Beyond Meat Burger, or and there's yeah. various other things, and how that we've got to say there is a use for um, the Beyond Burger if somebody wants to a damage the environment, b enrich corporations, and c damage their own health. Well, now they can do it in just one meal, and that would be the Beyond Burger. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> If if they want to come at me, well, do you know what they can. It's just, uh, yeah, I believe in common sense and science. And as much as people often like to say, and for good reason, oh, but there's so much conflicting studies out there. Yeah, who's paying for the conflict where it's so evident that human beings have done all right for the first 400,000 years of evolution. We've got a decent blueprint. Now let's actually look at quantifying different areas and expand our knowledge so that we can better apply it to the various individuals that need it. We just don't need an experiment that has no evidence behind it, that makes no sense, but just so happens to enrich the same people that have uh, been responsible for the change in food recommendations in 1970. How did that go, guys? We're digging a hole here. That we're not going to escape from. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we have, uh... Grabbing a ladder. Moving on out. <laughs> we, are, we are coming up on time. We talk a lot, don't we? I do love it, um, though. Um, words are good. Yeah, words, <laughs> words are good. And I feel this song is venting, so it's very therapeutic for me. Um, <laughs> good. One... Likewise. <laughs> um. One thing that I wanted to touch upon just before we wrap up was um, nutrients. And we have spoken about specific nutrients already. But like yeah. you said before, quite rightly, is it depends on the context of which you're looking at them. So if someone's not deficient in zinc, you give them more zinc, it's not necessarily going to increase their um, testosterone levels or any other hormones, for example. But there are studies to show that if you've got more zinc uh, utilized by the body, for example, athletes, We've seen professional athletes, they are maybe excreting more minerals, using more minerals up in biochemical processes, and then they use something like ZMA, zinc, magnesium, vitamin yeah. B6. You get an increase in testosterone and things of that nature. And you mentioned stress before, and I'm just going to fire loads of things at you now, and then you can comment. <laughs> you mentioned stress before, and I've read many studies now where it look, they look at ashwagandha 
and KSM 66 type mm-hmm. ashwagandha in particular. Um, I know there's Sensoril, but I, I actually don't know any data on that one, unfortunately. Um, but the KSM 66 seems to be good at improving not only testosterone, but reducing cortisol as well. And I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that you see to be efficacious with very low risk for people which are maybe looking for a starting point where they can Mm. explore with a practitioner. So, yeah, it it often comes down to that initial assessment. What are the obvious obstacles? So if we undertake that first appointment, I'll always have that organic acids test. So certainly Mm. that can flag up certain shortages. Let's touch on zinc. If somebody's short on zinc and they're aiming to boost their testosterone levels, there's not going to be many things that will be more successful or spectacular as correcting that zinc shortage. Um, and, and this is something that has been known for quite some decades and has potentially been misappropriated just in the sense that, uh, yeah, there's, there's studies going back to the 90s that if you supply zinc to zinc deficient men, their testosterone doubles. So that's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been extrapolated sometimes uh, to mean that zinc doubles testosterone. And that's not quite the case. If somebody's already got decent levels of zinc and if they are eating you know, what we would consider to be a normal Western diet, which includes regular meat intake, they're getting enough meat. So the only, are they getting enough zinc? They're, so now the only consideration is, are they digesting it well? Most people are, but of course it's still possible that that zinc isn't being uh, absorbed effectively. Decent diet, decent digestion. I'm not expecting any problems with zinc. Um, but we can test that anyway. And it is one of the markers on Genova's organic acids test. So we can get that quantification right mm-hmm. from the very start. If somebody's got decent levels of zinc and they supplement it, especially at high doses, what they're going to do is increase the production of a zinc dependent uh, protein called metallothenine. Metallothenine serves a lot of positive benefits uh, in the body. But one of the things it does, it binds up minerals. Very useful and crucial, in fact, if anybody is trying to do any sort of heavy metal detoxification. Uh, but it will also bind up copper on its way into the body. In other words, high dose zinc, when you don't need it, is the most effective way to induce a copper deficiency. And it happens a lot. And so this is where, what happens when you're low on copper? Well, you can't use iron properly. You can't move it around the body the way that you should. Your neurotransmitter balance, including dopamine, is affected. Equally, what's the primary role of copper in the body? It is to use up oxygen. Uh, So everywhere that oxygen is used, you will see a role for a copper-dependent protein. Uh, so this is where suddenly oxygen metabolism can be affected and with it goes mitochondrial function. Now with it goes the ability of the mitochondria to take the energy out of the bloodstream and turn it into ATP, mm. the currency that our bodies want. So not only do we lose energy, but also we're not able to 
uh, gobble up the energy from the bloodstream. What, what happens there, what has to happen there is the cell induces insulin resistance to stop there from being this, this buildup of highly reactive energy molecules in the mitochondria, which of course we don't want this massive buildup of highly reactive energy molecules at any of these super vulnerable places. So yeah, insulin resistance. And suddenly this is where these attempts to drive up testosterone have actually done the opposite because insulin resistance is one of the best ways to crash testosterone. So that's where if you're going to use zinc, first consider, do you need it? And if you're not sure, you can test it. <laughs> yeah, it's relatively cheap to test, actually, if you're doing it as a one-off. Yeah, definitely. One-off, but... um, yeah, 20-something pounds mm-hmm. uh, for a, a serum zinc test. And admittedly, that needs contextualizing. Yeah, I was just um, going to say I wouldn't recommend it as a one-off. but <laughs> Yeah, because if you've got poor cortisol activity or issues with cortisol sensitivity you may well find that actually that metallotheanine protein i mentioned isn't being produced so effectively and zinc now rises mm-hmm. you get an artificial uh, uh, uh rise in the levels it would appear that it's fine when it's actually not uh same goes for excessive oxidative stress it will uh spill the zinc off that uh, that protein that's meant to hold it and that can artificially drive up as well. There's an article on that on my website. But uh, but yeah, there are ways that we can uh, contextualize that. Um, looking at some liver markers can be really helpful there as well. Looking at uh, yeah some of the your organic acid markers, which isn't measuring zinc directly, it's measuring zinc activity. So we can build an accurate picture quite easily. That makes perfect sense. In terms of like, I mentioned ashwagandha before, is mm. that something which you feel has utility in? So yes, it's a very valid option. It wouldn't be one of my first choices, but ultimately anything that's going to reduce the activation of the stress response is arguably the most powerful step that most people can take to boost testosterone. So in that regard, if you take 20 people in that study and four of them get a good response to ashwagandha, the average response is statistically significant. It boosts testosterone, according to evidence-based medicine. And it most definitely can do. If you have a fairly functional stress response, uh, but you've actually been under a bigger load of late, those are the people that tend to do very well with ashwagandha. So typically these are people who are generally healthy, but maybe they're studying for exams, maybe they're athletes coming up to competition, maybe it's end of quarter and they're having to stay behind at work, whatever it is, they're feeling the effects of their stress. That's a time when I would expect ashwagandha to do a great job. If on the other hand, somebody has been thoroughly dysregulated and they've had all these complex chronic issues over the last decade, I don't hold much hope for ashwagandha touching sides. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's again, it's, it's one of those very valid things. But ultimately, this would be another example of me working backwards. If we can see all manner of dysregulation on an adrenal stress profile, we can measure heart rate variability and see that there's this massive fight and flight response that's kicking in at all times. Well, straight away, 
we can see that this individual is never going to have a fair chance of responding the way they should to all of those other things that we've discussed unless they tend to the stress response, which, of course, then creates the next important question. What do they need to do? Mm -hmm. Now, if it's just a case that they're sleeping three hours a night and they're not eating till 2 p.m. in the afternoon and they're working all hours that God sends, well, we know what we need to do. Just remove that. But sometimes it is going to be uh, that we need to take a look at the physiology. If you've had long-term burdens on the system, your stress response being overactive for years and years, well, we'll automatically expect that we'll have down-regulation of those cortisol receptors. We may well also then lose the effect that cortisol has on protecting us from inflammation, protecting our mitochondrial performance in the midst of all of this metabolic chaos. Suddenly, we're actually now got dysregulated inflammation, insufficient energy, the very things that the adrenal cortex needs to produce more cortisol. And thus, we often need to intervene heavily with potentially lifestyle changes, sleep support, inflammatory control, but on the front line, licorice root to support cortisol availability, Korean ginseng to support cortisol sensitivity, the response to that. And yeah, often people would uh, ask me, but, but doesn't cortisol uh, have negative effects on testosterone? Well, yeah, it does have a limiting effect in that you'll never see optimal levels of cortisol during, you'll never see optimal levels of testosterone uh, while the cortisol levels are high. But you can't recover from a major stress without that cortisol. It is a, uh, a hormone that helps us handle stress and recover from stress. So when people call it the stress hormone, it's such a misleading title. And so often we need phased support to support that cortisol during the transition, at which point we can now remove it and enjoy uh, the new state of play where these self-perpetuating cycles have been deactivated. And most importantly, that stress response is not stuck in the on position, which we're not uh, talking about limiting testosterone when that's the case. We're talking about deleting testosterone. Yes. Uh, and that's why, yeah, it's important not to be scared of adrenal support when it comes to, to tending to these stress uh, challenges that people have. Because if that is part of the picture, and it so often is, then all of these other things will be useless or limited. Right. Um, so we need to accept that optimal testosterone isn't feasible for several months but what we can do is use uh these these tools at our disposal to allow that individual to see the improvements thereafter that is to say remove the obstacles and let their body do what it's designed to do at which point we can take away that adrenal support and enjoy the fruit of that labor which is to say a fair chance at producing optimal testosterone which may happen automatically or it may be a case that now we can provide them with the boron and they'll respond yes or maybe we'll take these anti-inflammatory steps and they'll respond or we'll support dopamine 
effectively, and they'll now respond, whereas they would never have had that fair chance uh, upon that first meeting. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And just to um, bring an example to what you've mentioned, I remember at university, so I remember I'd be in my early 20s, um, and doing many all-nighters because I'm one of those people, well, I was one of those people that did everything last minute. And stress effectively, temporarily, basically neutered me. (laughs) Libido crashed. Um, And that makes perfect sense with what you were saying. Well, it Um, does. If you provide a situation that forces the body to really channel its resources into one area that is now prioritized and must be prioritized at a time when the lack of sleep, the increased stress, the poor quality eating, I assume, um, (laughs) is limiting the uh, pool of resources in the first instance. Well, it will do exactly what it's designed to do. Find a way to economize on its resources. And it turns out that going out hunting and competing for mates, everything else that comes with that is not a means to save energy. (laughs) It's actually very energy intensive. Um, And I'm sure that, yeah, those individuals that uh, still inhabit uh, the bars of Covent Garden every weekday evening, they'll tell you the same. It's an energy intensive process (laughs) to, uh, to go out and uh, browse and uh, attempt to, uh, yeah, engineer a certain outcome. So, yeah, it, it makes sense that that would get switched off if you force the body into economy mode. Yeah, thank, that's perfect. And I think you've um, you've explained those processes really well for, I think, practitioners and people that have an active interest in this field. And um, there's one more thing, and then we're going to completely close. Have you heard of any research with Tonga Ali? Tonga? <sighs> Yes, uh, a.k.a. Malaysian ginseng. Um, So I must say it has been many, many years since I even looked at it. And the reason why so many years have gone by without looking at it again is because I was not impressed uh, by it. Um, And neither have I heard of anyone introducing it and seeing the responses thereafter. Now, of course, that's not to say that it's not going to do the job. Um, And as I've touched on many times so far, there's so many occasions where people will trial uh, a particular item, be it Tonka Alley or or one of the various ginseng options or potentially uh, some of those other herbs that are deemed to be testosterone boosting and the key thing is yeah do they have a fair chance of seeing a response so that's why uh yeah i i'm aware that the research was not particularly impressive um exactly why there was i don't remember um so i'm not writing it off but neither have has there ever been any uh circumstantial uh, patterns that I've observed that would would call me to uh, yeah look at that and try and squeeze some benefits out of it. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So, Marek, this has been a a roller coaster. I feel of things that we've spoken about, as well as men's health, and really focusing on testosterone. I think this is a very robust podcast, but we'll get some feedback, and I will feed back to you. Um, yeah exactly let's put it to the people um, 
but this has been to make a, a podmocracy. <laughs> yeah, but this has been um, great, at least for me. Hopefully, hopefully you too. It's, it's been nice to go through all of these things. I enjoyed every single tangent we took, and we took plenty of them. <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah, hopefully managed to wrap that back into uh, yeah a complete package that people can take away and and use. Yes, and I will link to your website, Instagram, all social media articles that you mentioned as well, um, as well as papers that we have spoken about too. But just before you go, can you please let us know what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? Oh, okay. Put you on the spot there. This. Okay, most impactful change. Um, I'm going to say take magnesium before you go to bed. Yeah, you, you're not the there, There's about a dozen that. that I was tempted to go with, but we want a simple takeaway. And if you're not doing that, then, yeah, there are circumstances through which that won't have an impact. But I've got to say, of the times that real human beings have come back to me to say, this really changed my life, magnesium has probably featured more heavily on that list than any other which form so there's a lot of good forms most of the uh, collated forms are very decent uh, magnesium oxide is is rubbish uh, avoid that at all costs unless you're trying to induce bowel movement that's a different thing um but magnesium glycinate would probably be the one that i use most commonly by far away the most common uh, that i use brilliant this is a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll link to everything like I suggested and I hope that we can do this again soon. Oh, let's definitely do that again. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll sign off for now. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Just Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.